we felt a massive responsibility to every person in Canada, which seems like a strange and enormous thing to feel responsible for. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, this is Jason Watt. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be chatting with Julia Chung from Spring Plans about advice-only financial planning. Uh, this episode will be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. Uh, in Alberta, one life credit, no accident sickness credits for this episode. It'll be approved for one credit with Advocus or IAS, one professional development credit with IROC, and a practice management credit with FP Canada, not a financial planning credit, but a practice management credit with FP Canada. The color for today's episode is purple. The color for today's episode is purple. Okay, there's a lot in this interview. Julian and I chatted for quite a long time here, so I'll just throw in a few comments to get us started. Uh, one of the things that she mentions here is the use of soft skills, and I'm going to propose a different language around this rather than soft skills. And I hear people have trouble with that word, and I don't remember where I got this from. This is not something I came up with. I wish I could remember the origins of this. I really like foundational skills here rather than soft skills. To me, the kinds of things we talk about when we talk about these skills, I would suggest are foundational. These are human communication skills. These are interacting with people. These are setting up the environment properly. To me, these are foundational in that they would be useful in any professional or family or volunteer environment. And I think if we could shift the conversation a little bit here away from soft skills over to uh, foundational skills, uh, that might encourage, let's say, employers to have more generous policies. I know I've seen this with some employers where they say, we'll provide technical skills training for our staff, but no soft skills training. And I think if we change that language and we said it becomes a much more difficult, I think, position to take when you say we'll provide technical training, but we won't provide foundational training. So try that on for a size. See if you like foundational training instead of soft skills. And I'm curious to know if there's some other version of that out there that people are using. Okay, let's hear from Julia then. I really enjoyed this interview. I got to ask a lot of questions and learn a lot here. There's not that many advice-only uh, financial planners operating in Canada, although season three we've had quite a few on, but just this ability to dig into this business with a real pioneer in the space, uh, you'll hear that uh, I do learn a lot as we go through this. Okay, I'm here today with Julia Chung. Julia is the CEO, Julia, of Spring Plans. Is that right? The founder? I have that all right? Yeah, co-founder. Perfect. Of course, Spring Plans is well-known as a pioneer in the fee-only space. Can you talk a little bit about what Spring does and how you got started? Sure, yeah. Uh, Spring Plans is what we like to call an advice-only financial planning firm because uh, some people have been using fee-only to mean all kinds of other things. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, we just help people we create financial plans, help people make great financial decisions, and we are paid for giving that advice and support. And we do not sell products or manage wealth or any of those things. So our goal is to unlink our own 
biases uh, from the advice that we're giving to clients. And that is not to say that we think that every investment advisor and financial planner out there who works in investments is inherently biased as a human. But uh, because we are humans, we are going to give advice and, and skew things towards the things we know best. And when the thing that you know best is investment planning or insurance planning, your plans are going to be skewed that way. And we know that. It's just natural human behavior. So separating those two things out not only means that we're in better position to be less biased, it also means I get to do less paperwork. <laughs> That's true. Less compliance, less paperwork. Absolutely. Right? All of those things. <laughs> I'm interested in this. Actually, you mentioned this idea. You said less biased, which I appreciate because I hear sometimes people say unbiased, and I don't think that's right. It's uh, even Dan Kahneman, the master of biases. He hasn't removed his own biases. It's constant. We have, we all have biases. I think that's, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, you know, I learned about in uh, the Family Enterprise Advisor program that I took, we talked a lot about recognizing our own biases and recognizing whether we could actually remove them from a situation where we're helping a family uh, or helping a business work through the things that they want to work through. Because if, if we can't recognize them and admit that they're there, then we can't set them aside when we're giving advice to a client. And we have to be able to look internally and say, okay, I have this bias. I just have it. It's just what happens. Um, and how am I going to not let this impact the client? And so we're always biased because we're humans, but how do, how do we make sure that doesn't impact the client? So that's a lot of the thought behind how we've structured Spring is, yeah, what are our biases? How do we remove them? Do you have then some sort of systems or processes by which you identify and remove bias? Yeah, it's, it's, it tends to be mostly about talking about it amongst ourselves. So with my partner, Sandy, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about a client. So we have a weekly meeting with uh, all four of the planners at Spring. And we just talk about this is a new client that's coming in. This is, you know, their story. And we'll just, you know, what are our biases? What's coming up for us as people? And uh, and what do we think we need to do to remove that? Or who's going to, you know, backstop me and just look at something and say, you know, oh, Julia, you know, I think you're coming off a little biased here. So we, we try to give each other that support. The other piece that I think is really important, which might seem kind of weird to other people, is I'm a big fan of everybody on my team going through counseling. Perfect. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So like you actively promote people to use some mental health programs like that. Yeah, it's just about self-reflection, right? It, you know, you don't have to be in crisis to uh, to be able to reflect on yourself and say, you know, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to show up for people. I mean, I like to think of, of a counselor as often sort of like a coach who helps me be a better person in the direction that I've stated. That's the type of person I want to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I use coaching myself, and I always think my coach is a little bit of a counselor, so. Totally, the crossover is enormous. Not that I need it. <laughs> I have another point of curiosity here, I guess, and this is uh, around spring financial. <laughs> I'll badmouth them so you don't have to. This is a terrible, awful product that nobody should ever use. Uh, for the listeners who aren't aware, it's gimmicky sort of loan where you can, in theory, borrow your way into good credit, and it exactly makes as much sense as it is when I say it. I'm just curious about sort of like how that works for you. You get these calls from people who are trying to sort out these uh, questionable loans, right? It's so frustrating. We will probably uh, field, I think last month we were, we fielded at least 13 calls from, uh, from these folks. Um, and we have, uh, we've got a number of negative reviews on Google and on Facebook, which is about spring financial and not spring plans. And, you know, we don't own spring as a word, but we're, we're kind of in this weird place where it's like, we're known in the little kind of fishbowl that we live in as spring plans. We like the, what we're, we're not really looking at changing our name and our brand and those sort of thing, but the, uh, but the confusion happens a lot. It's really frustrating. Um, we do, when we try to field those calls, we direct clients to the right place. When I have received letters from lawyers and <laughs> a number of letters from lawyers, quite frankly, who are think that we're the same company. I'm calling them up and giving them information. And, uh, you know, I have said, you know, if, if you need our support, 
in this these conversations that you're having. We'd like to stop fielding these calls. So anything we can do, just let us know. But it just, yeah, it's frustrating. It's a, it's a crazy, unusual problem. I never would have thought about this until I came across the issue of, yeah, the, the names both sharing that one word, which like to me, it's good branding, but... <laughs> It is. I mean, we get some people who definitely need some very serious cash flow management help coming by our uh, our site. And I think they're grateful that we're nice to them. I mean, a lot of times when you get a, a wrong number, people will be like, wrong number and slam the phone down and be mean to you. And we just, you know, we direct them to the website and we direct them uh, to the phone number. And on occasion, I have directed them to a lawyer. Makes sense. So just circling back to your actual business model, not somebody else's now. So you do advice only planning, and I do have to get that language sorted out. So how do you identify the sort of ideal client for your practice? Do you have an ideal client? Do you have this sort of vision of what what that looks like? We do now. So uh, when we when we first started, so uh, the Sandy, my partner, and I each started individual practices. I started mine in 2011. She started hers a couple years later. And I started out my practice very much focused on business owners and people with complex tax situations. And uh, Sandy started out her practice very much focused on uh, sort of regular middle-class folks. And we both felt uh, a strong need to you know, collaborate together to send clients to each other, you know, raise all boats, improve things. And there really weren't a lot of people doing this. So we felt a massive responsibility to every person in Canada, which seems like a strange and enormous thing to feel responsible for, but we really did. And, um, and we wanted to, we were trying to like, how do we get financial planning to people in the way that we think financial planning should be, you know, assuming that, of course, we're right um, <laughs> and, and you know, out there and available to the people who are asking for it. And so we initially tried to be all things to all people, which, as I'm sure you can imagine um, and, and know from your own experience, is a very, very bad idea. But the other thing that we did was support a group of advice-only financial planners over the last kind of three four plus years. It's actually how Sandy and I met as we created this group. And then we started peer mentoring each other. And then we started uh, mentoring a whole bunch of other kind of newbies to the industry. And in doing that, we found um, not only with that and then folding that group into the Financial Planning Association of Canada, uh, we found that we were able to directly impact Canadians from all walks of life, but now we no longer felt responsible for actually directly serving all of those people, which is very hard to do. So (laughs) now we're in a position where we're kind of going back to the original group of people that I've always served, uh, which is those people who have more complex tax situations. So if you have a corporation, a family business, some trust issues, not like trust issues, but you know, you have a trust. (laughs) Um, And, you know, some people who are U.S. citizens living in Canada or, you know, people with disabled kids, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there uh, that requires a specific type of expertise. And in the advice-only planning world, which is getting bigger and bigger in Canada all the time, we're one of the very few groups that serves that niche. Do you find then that you're getting clients primarily from like the website or by referral or from referrals from other advisors? Where does that come from? Um, Most of our referrals uh, of those particular niche of clients are coming from other professionals. That's actually like a category in our CRM, other professionals. So that'll be lawyers, accountants, and investment counselors. I would say it's probably primarily investment counselors and occasionally accountants and lawyers. Those, Those are the people who are sending us the most business in that arena. We do get lots of inquiries on our website, um, and a lot of those people tend to sit in the sort of middle class area with less complexity, and we are, um, we're referring those out a lot more often to people who are better situated to serve them. Makes sense. And of course, you said you had done the Family Enterprise Advisor Program, which I've heard great things about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. I can, uh, 
Uh, full disclosure, I'm also on the board there. I'm a big fan of the Family Enterprise Exchange, what it does. And it really comes from being part of that program. I was one of the early cohorts in 2013. Um, and it it made a really big difference to how I think about not only how I serve clients, but even how I run my own business, you know, and how I how I talk to the people inside my business and the things we should be thinking about. It's, it's made a massive difference. Makes sense. We had a Back in season one of this podcast, we had Kent on talking about the program. He had just finished it at the time. So, yeah. And I know he's restructured his business model substantially since taking it. So It's amazing what it does to just reconstruct your brain around advising. It's really heavy on um, what people call soft skills, which are incredibly difficult. And uh, it, it really changes your your approach to business, people, all kinds of things. Yeah, I like that. Does it get you traction with, I know you said you don't get a ton of referral business from accountants, but does it get you any traction with accountants? Is there some utility there? Definitely with other people who have the FEA designation, there's something about knowing that someone else took this program and this this set of language and this approach that we have around businesses and families is understood because we tend to grow up professionally inside our own professions. And all of our professions tend to be very, very technical. Um, You get into that situation where you're a hammer and everything's a nail. And so every single business and family business you run into, you're like, oh, what they need is a solution, right? That's what we do. We get, we solve people's problems. And so we're like, okay, I'm going to take the solution that I know I'm going to apply it and apply it and apply it. And that's just what we're taught. And what we get taught in the FEA program is the harder stuff where it's like just peeling back. Like I'm not even trying to find solutions right now. I'm just listening. I'm just trying to figure out who you are. And then we're going to walk you down this pathway where you get to make decisions and I'm going to help you clarify those things. And I'm going to help you think about those things. And then like way over here, once we've done all that work, then we can talk about solutions. And it's a really hard thing to do when you're a service provider who's paid to provide solutions. It's just this massive mind shift. Yeah, I, I see the, the difficulty there. And I remember Kalu, the very first time I went, we did like a mini case study pre-Kalu that was uh, an FEA sponsored event, or I guess family enterprise exchange, right? That's yeah, um, sponsored event. And uh, it was great. And it, same type of thing. You got to see how much depth there is going into these behavioral questions before you ever talk about tax or trusts or estate free. And, it, and it's hard, right? Because the client is also saying, no, I came to you for solutions. <laughs> and so you're not only having that internal pushback, like I'm supposed to be providing an answer here. You know, this is my responsibility. You're also having that pushback from the client going like, why are you asking me all these questions? This is uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for you. And as a professional, just knowing like, I know that this process works and I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to make me uncomfortable, but we're going to arrive at the place that you are just going to, this is going to work so well for you instead of it being just a cookie cutter application of solutions and, and clients like it, but you do have to, you have to get them over that hump and it's hard. What about dealing with their kids, their spouses, the grandkids, that kind of thing. Does that show up in a typical engagement you would do? Um, if if they do have uh, multi generational families that that we're dealing with, it absolutely does. And there's there's of course pushback on that as well. Well, I'm the one who owns the business and is in charge of the money. I'm the only person you have to talk to. And I'm like, okay, so here's a couple of stories of when things went terribly wrong. And that's always because we didn't talk to the family. It's always because we didn't do the work, you know. And it's sort of like saying, you know, I'm going to solve mental health issues by just going going straight to the 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 pill we're just not even going to talk about what kind of pill we're going to use we're just going to be like i think you're diagnosed with this so i'm going to give you that one see you later we would never do that or we shouldn't do that with any kind of health and um if we think about financial planning about being about financial health and about the impact that it has on individuals and families if you, if you really, we've all seen and heard horror stories about what happens to people, you know, just, you know, even if it's just a couple and they haven't really talked it through and you have, you know, two people who retire and one of them's like, we're going to sell the house and RV and we're going to spend the rest of our life golfing. And the other one's like, we're doing what, <laughs> you know, and that can, that can create a divorce. Right. And that that's terrible. And then, you know, when, when, 
family members die or there's a succession plan in the business and nobody's talked to the kids. And all of a sudden it's like, well, Joe's in charge now. And Jill, you here's, here's a cottage. See you later. And then the family implodes. Like the impact of what we choose to do as advisors is enormous. We can destroy marriages and families by not doing the hard work. So it's really, yeah, it's an important part of what we do. And it's something we're always focused on. I think that point around communication and people knowing what's actually happening is so important. Do you use the family meeting as kind of a tool in your toolbox or do you have something else to get everybody talking? Um, I, I definitely do. And I also know that I am not an expert facilitator. I have decent communication skills that I'm always trying to work on, but I also know that there are other people who are very well positioned to have those in-depth facilitated family conversations. There are therapists that are often needed. And so what I try to do is build a team around the family and just say, you know, like I can, I can build the whole strategy, but we're going to need this person and that person and this person. I'm probably not the best person to facilitate your family meeting when you talk about when Jill stole your teddy bear and mom laughed at you. Um, That's not me. Right. But I respect all those things. But I think a big part of it is just knowing where's the boundaries of your expertise. My boundaries are here. I know a lot about these things, but I'm not I don't have to do them all. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I think every good financial planner should approach it that way. You have to recognize where your limitations are. Now, I'm assuming because you focus on the business owner sort of market and maybe I'm out of place here, but do you find you get sticker shock around the the cost of a financial planning engagement or do people kind of look at it as a cost of doing business? Well, that's kind of, um, it's an interesting and, and valid question. So what we have found is the people who don't have experience working with professionals, who don't have an accountant and, and a lawyer that they're always dealing with, absolutely sticker shock especially at our price points where, you know, we're priced for business owners and it's more complexity. Um, so there's there's definitely sticker shop for middle-class folks. And that's why I, I think that there's other advisors that can definitely serve them better. But yeah, those people who are like, yeah, I, I meet with my accountant every year and I get a bill that looks like this, they are not surprised at all. What about then your, like, what, what happens when you have a middle market client come to you? Do you I, I know you said, Sandy sort of lives in that world, right? She has. She's moving out of it. <laughs> okay. You know, it's almost inevitable. It seems like everybody I talk to who's on the, the uh, advice-only side, they kind of started off at a certain fee structure and really saw, is it the amount of work? What do you think drives that increase in, in fee-only that it seems inevitable in the first sort of three to five years? It is. I think we all start off with this idea that, um, you know, it should be less expensive and we undervalue ourselves and all these sorts of things because we often come from the worlds of investments and insurance where income is really you know, buoyed by those those sales products, and they like they pay really well. I mean, if you go if you're outside in a different field, you're like, you made how much by doing what? Um, the, the money that gets paid for this is, is really, really high. And so the, the cost of financial planning, therefore, seems like, I mean, in that little world, like it should be lower, right? Because, oh, well, you're getting all of it. Anyways, it's, 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 it's a mind shift that's really, really difficult. And so when we make that move, I think initially we're like, okay, well, it's already really expensive for our clients to do all the things that they're doing. So I don't want to be that added expense. And I think that anybody starting a service business has a hard time pricing their own value. It's like, well, what would I pay for someone else to give me this advice? Well, frankly, nothing, because I don't need anybody to give me this advice. I'm good at it, right? <laughs> so that's that's a really hard one. But after you spent a couple of years working in a service capacity of any kind, I do find that people start raising their prices because they're like, oh, I actually need to to make more money. I need to to live a life and be able to save for my retirement. Um, and and this system costs. So once your business starts to grow and it's more than just you, suddenly you're paying for more infrastructure. You're paying for assistance. You're paying for a higher liability insurance. Don't, and, and liability insurance for advice-only planners is difficult to find and very expensive. But you're paying for all of these things and you're paying for them on a grander and grander scale as your 
business gets bigger and the price is going to go up because the cost of doing business is actually higher than anybody thinks when they get started. I think that's, you're right to point out that that's common for services businesses. I don't think it's unique to financial planning or advice in general. So then just circling back to the that sort of middle income or mass affluent client, what would you tell that person if they come to you today and say, you know, Julie, I really need some help here. Where do you send them then if you're sort of not in that market? Well, I, I there's a couple of advice-only planners who I really like working with, um, and most of them are on the adviceonlyplanners.ca website. So that's the uh, the original forum that Sandy and I met each other under. Um, that group of people has been working together in kind of a peer mentoring atmosphere for years, and I know that they understand what my expectations are for service. Um, and we've talked a lot about what it means to serve a client and all the different components that we talked about. And we've shared engagement letter structures and all kinds of things. So I know that if somebody's going to that site and you know picking a couple people from there, those are people who at least have the same sort of lay of the land that we do. Because this is the wildest west. And uh, there, there really aren't regulations or structures for what it means to be an advice-only planner in Canada. There's there's really not even a really good structure of what it means to provide a financial plan, like what you expect to see in it. I mean, FP Canada gives some uh, direction, but it's really, it's not very good and it's not very clear. So uh, what we've always striven for in that group and now in FPAC is really about providing those details so we can say, so when a client works with a financial planner of any stripe, they know what to expect. I think that's part of the reason why sometimes there's sticker shock. So I don't even know what a financial plan is other than this like three pages of charts I don't understand I got from the bank. So, and you're going to charge me how many thousands of dollars for that? Like, that's hard. It's a leap of faith for them. So I'd like to change that. Yeah, I think that part of the issue, and I'm a big fan of FP Canada in general, I think part of the issue with what they're doing is their guidance around financial planning is it's almost an all things to all people sort of guidance, right? Whereas if you're doing advice only, maybe you can focus that in a little bit. And I know uh, FPAC, the Financial Planning Association of Canada, tends to be folks who I think take their financial planning pretty seriously, as the name implies. Then that's that's the goal is, you know, I, I think FP Canada does a great job of serving the many, many CFPs that are out there. And yeah, it's like they have to find a message that works for all the people who are working in many different capacities. But Financial Planning Association of Canada is really focused on trying to get out to the financial planners. You know, what does it mean to provide a really good financial plan? What is a fully thought out financial plan. And if the financial planners know that as a collective group, which frankly, they don't, um, <laughs> then Canadians will know that as a collective group. And then they'll be able to say, oh, yeah, well, I do need the full meal deal that you would get with somebody at Spring Plans. Or you know what, I don't. And I'm actually really in a good situation getting kind of the light version that I might get from um, my bank or something like that. So I, I think Canadians need to understand the differences. Now, do you find that your clients tend to be sort of like one and done engagements? You might work with them for 18, 24 months, or do you find that you really work with them for years and years and, and you, you see them, you know, you'll see them in 2022 and 2025 and 2030 and so on? So I was positive that people would like be one and done and they would want that. Right. And, and, and I think that's my, my own bias and that I always like new things. Like, I'm going to work with this new client and then, you know, move on to the next one. But over the uh, nearly 10 years that I've been working in this specific way, 90% of my clients come back every single year. Interesting. I'm surprised at that, actually. I did not think it was going to look like that. I was also surprised. And we've had to restructure some things for like retainer clients, like I, who want to meet with me twice a year and, and talk about little tweaks and um, yeah, those clients who, cause they don't need a full refresh every year. And so that was always like, well, you've got a plan. You'll be great. Um, but what they really do need is 
that kind of support side of things like, okay, we were supposed to get this done and I didn't do it. I ran into a stumbling block or um, what was my, the income plan for this year? That tends to be the, the harder one with people, whether they're retired or definitely people with corporations. It's like, okay, this much money came into the corporation. I need to pay myself out this much, but where do I draw the money from at this year? We can say that on a high level in a long-term financial plan, but on an annual basis, we actually do need to get more granular. And many accountants don't do that. Most accountants do not do that type of planning. And so we're, we're providing some support there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I love accountants. I actually am just in the middle of an email, email correspondence with my own accountant, and he's great. But, you know, he when we talk about a will, for example, I, he asks Jason, you have a will. I'm like, yeah, and that's it. He's, it's like, we're done, move on. Never have to talk about that again. Yeah, and, and and those kinds of things are important. And just like, you know, just once a year, someone might talk to me and they'd be like, oh yeah, we're just shooting the breeze and this thing happened and that thing happened. And I'm like, oh, okay. That means we need to update your will. We need to talk to your accountant about the structure of your shares. We need to make sure that we're planning for the cash flow that you're going to need because of that. Because, you know, buying a second house costs more money and we didn't account for that and the draws that we're expecting and all these kinds of things. And it really just tends to come out of this, hey, what's new? What's happened since the last time I talked to you kind of conversation? It's uh, it's fair. I wonder if people assume that I'm going to do everything because as I think about it, I've talked with my accountant, my lawyer, and my financial advisor multiple times since selling my business and nobody has asked me about updating my will. Oh, <laughs> You probably need to update your will. I know I have to do it. But this is the thing, like the the what I found for a lot of for almost everybody is when you think about how complex navigating your own finances and legal and 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 just the like tax compliance and all that sort of thing, it's really hard. And then we're working with professionals who are very, very good deep knowledge about what they do. And so you talk to your accountant and they're like, okay, I'm going to do the accountant things. I know these things about what we need to do with tax reporting. And your your financial advisor knows these things about what we need to do with your investments. And you're in the middle saying, but how does what I did over there impact what I do over here? And do they even know that? And they're saying, each one is saying, I know my thing. And I, and I know it really well. And I think um, an advice-only financial planner, particularly because they're not managing insurance and investments, they're able to look at things from a high level and say, okay, this happened, so we need to update your will, change your beneficiary designation. That's going to impact your asset allocation. You might have to um, you know, increase or decrease your insurance over here and you know, you, you just sold your business and you're not planning on working anymore. I don't think you have disability insurance needs and, you know, like all of these things. And, and that one advisor that you managed to talk to this year, then you might talk to the other one next year, they're going to know their thing. So I think that's the reason why we've ended up doing yearly conversations with our clients. It's just sort of like, if something comes up every time. I see that. Um, now, just maybe we can delve into some of the engagements you find yourself in. So just from, from the start, uh, you've worked in both the, the traditional commission-based world and now the advice-only world. Do you find that developing client relationships, building trust, that kind of thing is different where you are now versus where you've been? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's easier. It is so much easier. And uh, so when when I left traditional financial services, I was, you know, working in a brokerage firm providing estate and financial planning. I thought I had an amazing amount of trust with my clients. And then I moved into advice only. And I had no idea. I had zero idea. I was missing the boat on everything. They kept information from me that I didn't even know they had. And it was every client. It is amazing just how that shift and what they expect from you changes how they talk to you. And it's from the get-go, you know, just there are some clients that, you know, we've we're booked them for a discovery meeting. I haven't even started talking to them yet. And they're trying to email me very personal information. I'm saying, no, don't send that by email. Please, I don't need that information right now. I'm going to delete this. We're not, we don't even have an engagement yet. You know, like the, the amount of information that they're just starting to hock at you right away. They're like, oh, thank God, someone I can spill my guts to. And it did shock me how different that was because I thought clients were doing that with me before and they were not. And I'm still the same person. So it's the structure. 
You think it's a power dynamic where clients assume that you're trying to gather assets or something like that? Is it, is, is it just that simple? I think there's a lot of it. You know, they're like, you know, what are you here for? And even if they're very hopeful and they want all the things that that you can get out of a good financial plan, there's still a part of them that says, is this person really on my side? And even if you've been working with them for 10 years, they know that you're a human. Why are you doing this? Why would anybody do anything for free? Nobody does anything for free. That's not how stuff works. You know, this isn't a charity that you're working in. Like if this was an actual charitable financial planning organization that you work for, maybe they would trust that you're not trying to gather assets. But if like what you do is sell investments and insurance and you haven't charged them for this, why would they trust that process? It doesn't make any sense. Interesting. We'll have to compare notes about charitable financial planning someday. (laughs) deliberately charitable. I don't mean like the accidentally charitable thing. So yeah, when when you're working with the client then, because you don't have any assets under management, you don't have any of their insurance, how much confidence do you have? And I get that there's that trusted relationship, but how much confidence do you have that you have sort of the, the financial big picture before you get too far down the road? Um, well, the really big thing is, is we let clients know every step of the way that this is a garbage in, garbage out situation. How badly do you want this advice? And so we'd spend a lot of time going over, you gave me this piece of information. This is how I interpret it. Have I interpreted it correctly? So just that data check with them and data validation, it's a big part of our process and it's important. And we also do some data validation with their uh, their advisors. So ideally, and in most situations, we've got uh, authorization from the client to talk to all their key advisors. So we get the initial information from the client. We data validate that with them so as they understand it. And then we get more information from their, ed- their advisory team as well. And so, okay, this is what the client understands. Why don't you tell me what you understand? And somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. <laughs> Do you have software tools you prefer to use? Is there one sort of financial planning package you use or is there? Well, we we definitely use Navaplan. I've been using Navaplan since 1997. So I know how to make it do what I want it to do. Um, <laughs> it's It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's done a slightly better job on corporations in the last couple of years than it used to. I used to be doing all of that running in the background with spreadsheets and that sort of thing of our own creation. Um, And there's certain things that we're still doing by spreadsheet, but feeding it into Navaplan where appropriate. I like Navaplan because I know it um, and I know when it's wrong and I know how to make it do what I want it to do by poking it and kicking it in the right direction. I've used FP solutions, I've used the Razor, I've used Plan Plus, any number of iterations. And what I mostly like about Navaplan is that it is so easy to easy for me, very difficult for lots of other people, but because I know it, it's so easy for me to dive into each intricate piece of it and change it and adjust it. Whereas a lot of these things are quite closed as to what you can do. And you're always going to get this kind of outcome. And a lot of them are also structured around asset gathering or providing an insurance outcome, as opposed to things like cash flow and growth and intergenerational wealth, which is a thing I can mostly make NAVA plan do. I think that a, a key point there, the opportunity cost of changing is so high. It's just, you have to relearn. And like you said, you've got 23 years of experience. Did I get that right, Julia? Yeah, that's painful. That, <laughs> with that software package. I mean, that's, that's, it's hard to replace that. It is. I'd like to, because there's many things about it that make me extremely angry. But um, <laughs> But one of the things I also like about it, being an extremely small firm, in an extremely small area of financial planning is that it is very well supported by a large number of big money um, financial institutions in Canada. And so that's being served, right? Like this software package continues to get updated and served. And I think it's, you know, probably going to outlast me. That tells me there's some consistency there, but, you know, for our own sake and to, you know, a little bit of risk management, I've got outputs and printouts of every possible thing we've ever put into Navaplan so that I could recreate it anywhere else if I wanted to. 
you still find yourself doing some work in Excel in the background? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. Yeah, it, it doesn't maximize TFSAs. It does not understand what an RDSP is. It, it just, there's a bunch of things it doesn't do particularly well. It, there's no trust module whatsoever. So I have to do trust planning kind of outside of that and that kind of thing, but that's some stuff. <laughs> now, do you think that in advice-only models, do you think it's harder here to, I'm going to say, break bad news, you know, essentially if somebody comes to you, they're going to write you a check, they say, Julie, I want to you know, be told everything's going to work. Do you think there's something there where it makes it harder to, to either deliver or receive bad news? Um, it's, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I thought so for a long time, but what I found is I hate delivering bad news. I am not great at it. It just like, it, it just burns me to my soul. Whereas my partner, Sandy is actually quite good at it. Like really very impressive at it. Um, you know, I'm always trying to find ways to, to make it work, you know, and just like, just slam it into things. And I think one of the freedoms that we do have, uh, in this model is to be able to take the time because we're paid for our time to say, well, yeah, okay, what you thought was going to happen isn't going to work. But I ran this scenario, this scenario, and that scenario. So your options are actually, you can go with A, B, C, D, E. What's actually going to make the most sense for you, who you are. So I think one of the things that that I think we do very well at Spring is remember that we're not the ones making this decision. A lot of times people are like, come to my financial planner, they're going to give me my marching orders and they're going to wave their magic wands and you know I'm just going to get a piece of paper that just says, Joe, you need to do this now. But what we do, it, we're really focused on, do you have all the tools and information you need to make a decision that right that's right for you? I don't know if, you know, since we really can't afford cottage A that you super badly wanted, whether you're actually more comfortable with going with a lower price or maybe selling it 30 years from now or, or, or like all these different iterations. And so if I give you a lot of different options or a reasonable number anyways, because of course you can iterate into infinity, but a reasonable number of options, now you know how to make a decision. And what I found is clients are really grateful for that. They're like, oh, Okay, you know, like, and suddenly you've given them that very important piece of autonomy. And uh, we've been studying the the scarf model a little bit um, internally. Um, so this is the idea that every human being has some basic requirements and the acronym is SCARF. And so the first one is status. Everybody has a degree of status and that doesn't necessarily mean like I need to be better than other people, but I am recognized as I am this person right? Status. And then the C is certainty. And a lot of people are trying to come to financial planners for certainty, and that's not what we have. But, but they're looking for some degree of certainty. So what can we give them? You know, and we can give them some of this, if this, then that kinds of scenarios. Kind of a bounded certainty. Yeah. Like, you know, risk management stuff. I, nothing is certain, but you might be okay if all these things happen. And then the A is autonomy. Do I have the ability to make my own decisions? And that's so important. And it's, you know, when we're taught that we're the ones handing out answers to people, we don't get taught how important it is for us to give the decision-making back to the human who has to live with it. And I think that's a really big, important part of the planning we do. Uh, the R is relatedness. We're social creatures. We need to interact with each other. And now I've forgotten what the F is. <laughs> that's what's supposed to happen when you have a list. You're supposed to forget the last thing on the list. It's the problem with that. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking it up on Google now. What's the F? Fairness. Fairness. So people need to feel like things are fair. And you can see how that SCARF model would actually work in any situation, whether it's financial planning on an individual level, whether it's working with a family, or just like you. In the work that you do every day, are you experiencing status, certainty, certainty autonomy, relatedness, fairness? And if you have those at whatever levels are comfortable for you, and of course that's separate for everybody, then you are going to feel confident about how you're going about your life. And those are the things that we think about when we're putting a financial plan together for people. Do they have these things for themselves? And we talk to them about them. It's good. I think it's good to have a model by which we can understand how people are motivated or how they view the world. So nice to have. And thanks for explaining it because you saved me asking the question. So 
<laughs> I, I didn't know it. I've not heard the scarf model that I can recall. So that's good. Now, when you're working with clients, and I think this is probably true for business owner clients, and I know they're used to dealing with the accountant, the lawyer, the investment counselor, but you're often delving into things that are new concepts, new ideas. How much do you feel like you're forcing your client to drink from the fire hose or how do you balance that effect? Absolutely forcing our client to drink from fire hose. And, and I tell them that from like day one, you are going to get an enormous amount of information and you are not going to be able to process it all. Not all at once, but I can't actually do this. I can't give you good advice without me processing it all at once. So I'm going to spit it back out to you. And I'm going to give it all to you at once. So people have talked a lot about modular financial planning, you know, okay, that might work for lots of people, but because this is connected to this, which is connected to that, which is connected to that thing over there, I don't think it makes sense to kind of hold back stuff from clients. What I say usually is, here's an enormous amount of information. You're not going to be able to process it all. Just don't expect that for yourself, but we're going to go over this. You're going to have lots of time to just understand how this works. Like in a planned presentation, all I'm teaching you is how this works. You don't even have to <laughs> you don't even have to understand yet what you're supposed to do. Just know I've already given you a task list. We've got priorities set out. And now I'm going to explain to you how this works. And then I'm going to ask you to go back into it a week from now and go over this section and then that section. And I'm going to follow up with you. And I'm going to get you to ask me your questions. And we might have to change this or that because now that you've had time to think about this one component, you now have different questions or thoughts about it. But I don't think it's fair in my experience, to try and hold these things back from clients because we are thinking in this whole big picture situation and for them to be able to make good decisions with the information we've given them, they need to be able to see it too. Even if it's really hard to access, we're doing it in chunks. Do you have a sense of how many of the recommendations you give ultimately get implemented? Yeah. I follow up with them like crazy. Um, so I am terrible personally at follow-up. I hate following up with people. Um, I do not enjoy being a nag, but uh, we've got a really good system in place and I've got an amazing team of administrators and we've got a plan for every single client. What does the follow-up look like? How often are they going to hear from us? And they've got a list of things that uh, we're going to follow up with the client on. And so we have check-ins and you know, usually the first check-in after a plan, whether it's three months or six months, most clients are rolling in going, I did nothing. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry. There were all these reasons. And it's like, mm, I expected you to do nothing. This is way too much stuff. This is our check-in to make sure that something happened. But sometimes too, like if, if we're lucky enough to be in a situation where I can give some of the work to other professionals, it's like, that's okay. Your lawyer already knows about this. Your accountant already knows about that. Your investment advisor knows about this. Your insurance people know about that. And a lot of times that's what clients really want is just for us professionals to talk to each other, set things in motion and call them when we need stuff. So when you say that your team of administrators, make sure there's follow on, is that sort of customized for each client? Some people say, I want to hear from you every two weeks. And some people say, I want to hear from you by text. And some people say, I prefer to get like an email or is it sort of, all the same push. It's there's there's a basic kind of minimum one that we, that we start with. There's frameworks that we start with. So six months and twelve month check ins after the first receipt of the plan is kind of standard. But depending on what the outcome is of the plan, it might be two weeks because we got to get on top of something really quickly. Or it might be like on rare occasions, you know, there's nothing that actually needs to happen here for about eight months. I'm going to contact you in eight months. But we have a base level model. We operate by email. Nobody's getting a text from me because I can't keep track of text messages in my phone. I will drop one and I don't expect any of my team members to do that. So a lot of it's by email, just the initial follow-ups, but there's certain ones that at certain points will always be a meeting nowadays on video conference, but very often by phone and back in the olden times in person. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll be back to in-person meetings. One day. <laughs> one day. So what about uh, life planning and financial planning? I, I gather this is something of a passion for you. Can you chat a little bit about how you distinguish the two or if you have to even distinguish the two? We don't distinguish the two at Spring Plans. We think that your life is the first part of the plan and that the financial plan is there to support that. So we tend to focus on what is 
your life. Who are you? What is being a successful you look like? And I want to know weird stuff that you're like, why would I tell my financial planner that, you know, I like to go to France and, you know, eat ice cream and, you know, the, these very specific things. But I do need to know those things because I want that visualization of what your life is because it might be at some point down the road that that specific ice cream you like to buy in Paris is something we're factoring into your plan in some way, shape or form, right? I want to know what success looks like for people. So my my personal driving passion in any place I operate is to help people become successful. And the only way they can do that is by defining clearly what success looks like for them. Your success looks different than my success, looks different from my neighbor's success and that guy down the street. They're all different. I want to hear what that looks like because I don't think that I can connect with your plan until I can know what that visualization is so that we know that if we're putting money in this account over there, it's for that sailboat that you wanted. And I know that that one's wouldn't, you know, like it's just, we're just more deeply connected and we're more likely to do something that is connected with that focus. This, uh, you know, if the goal is, I just want to have more money by time X, you can do that with calculators. Yeah, I agree. And I think that when people are seriously asked in a in a real conversational manner about how they think about success. Nobody attaches a dollar amount to it. That's not a... It is not. <laughs> yeah, that's not how it should go. Now, because you have that life planning discussion and you know what their you know, trip to France looks like, what they're looking to achieve there, or what, they're, what the experience they're looking for is, what kind of non-technical problems? So you, you've talked thoroughly about dealing with the other technical advisors, the financial advisor, investment counselor, all that good stuff. What about the non-technical advisory team or consulting team? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, family facilitators, there's uh, counselors, business coaches. It is endless, the type of support that my clients might need. Um, I have an enormous roster of people that I recommend to, and it could include a realtor and a mortgage broker. Of course, that one seems fairly obvious, but sometimes it also includes like, I know a really good plumber. And <laughs> right. Cause we're just, we're just building the lives that we have and, you know, everything's a, a connected network and, and the way that we build our lives has to do with that network. And it's, been pretty good. I've, I've worked with organizational development consultants for people who are, you know, doing different things inside their businesses, uh, grief counselors for people who are processing those kinds of things, not only divorce lawyers, but also like there's even divorce coaches who help people just even through thinking that sort of stuff out. So there's nuances everywhere. The reason I ask, I've got this sort of unanswered question, Julia, about, and this is really, so you know, FP Canada says when I use an outside referral, I'm supposed to have some degree of confidence that I'm referring to somebody who's appropriately qualified. Yeah. You're not going to go through marital difficulties just to check out the quality of the marriage counsel you're sending a client to, right? How, how do you get a sense for that type of referral, for, for whether that's a proper referral? Yeah, it, it has to do with... I think really knowing your client, and it's one of the things that annoys me about KYCs is, you know, having read them for years, I'm like, I know nothing about this client now, having read this, but like really knowing your client, what what type of support do they actually need? And then do I in fact have the network that can support that individual person? And maybe I don't. And then I start looking to other people. But yeah, it's like, have I met this person? Have they worked with another client of mine and that client had a really good experience? Um, have I met them through any number of networks that I belong to? And did I find that we had a values match in the way that we approach clients? And of course, do they have their basic certifications and whatever it is that they have expertise in? Those kinds of things. I'm very community focused. It's one of my my biggest values personally is having a community that um, is interactive and and serves each other well. And so I'm always thinking about that community and what works in a positive community is that shared sense of values. And so when when I can see that somebody shares that value system that I have around supporting clients and the way that we think about and talk to people, then you know they kind of get added into my network and. And, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time also talking to them about, you know, if I'm going to refer so-and-so to you, I'm going to pick up the phone or send an email or something like that and say, like, this is the person that I'm thinking of referring to you. This is the kind of support I think they need. How would you support that? And how do we check in with each other to make sure that happened? I have one last question for you here. So 
you have a team of planners scattered across the country here, your planners and your admin staff. How do you think about culture? And I ask this really because you've been doing this for a long time and a lot of entities are still getting used to this idea of a very scattered workforce and, and how you address culture in that case. Culture and community are, are big things for me. They're very, very important. Um, and I've worked with professionals and continue to work with professionals to develop that. So, you know, being really mindful about like, what is the culture that you want to have? Why are we creating it this way? So a business is not just created to serve the clients or customers of that business. It's also created to serve the people who work there. So what what kind of culture do you want to create? And what does that mean? So I think studying culture and saying like, this is what I want for a culture, right? As a leader, regardless of whether you think that there's a right way to do culture and then there's the way you do culture. You have to know that about yourself because whatever it is that you do, whoever you are as a leader, that's going to be the culture. And it doesn't matter <laughs> what you think is right. You have to think about like what you're developing. So again, you know, as I said, I always encourage people to go to counseling. I think being a leader means self-reflection. It means ripping apart who you are and making sure that that is a healthy thing that you're projecting out into the business that you've created. And what impact does that have on these people? And then when you mindfully add people to your culture, understanding that each person changes that culture. So what change will they have? Is it the change that you wanted? Is it the change that you didn't want? Are they doing the self-reflection that you need them to do in order to create that change? Are you even a culture that has self-reflection? Anyways, all those kinds of things. It's a constant thought for me about what that means. And then what is the communication so that's part of the culture. And I really believe very strongly in layered communication, particularly in what they call a distributed workforce, which is what we have. It's right across the country, people working in their own homes. We've always been set up that way because we are women-owned and women-led and women very often need to be close to home. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I gave a lot of thought at first, like, how are we going to create connections? Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. So what mediums are we using and what message does that send? And then again, like I said, layers, you know, there's that regular daily communication. How do we create water cooler talk when we don't have water coolers to go to? And how do we create formal conversations so that we can still have innovation um, and relaxed brain work out of people who aren't beside each other all the time? So there's many, many layers to it. Even with a very small group like we have at Spring, it's super important. And I get it wrong at least 25% of the time. <laughs> Do you have any last minute thoughts to share with us, Julie? Anything you'd want to share with the, the listeners out there? Just really that uh, to remember that when it comes to financial planning, it really is about the people. Who is it that you're serving and how are you going to support them into what they want? It's not our job to tell people that this is what they should want and this is how they should get it. If you remove the word should from your vocabulary and open up your ears to active listening, I really think you're going to be much more successful and have much better relationships with your clients. My, uh, my friend Kathy Hawksworth at Edmonton Community Foundation always jokes about shooting all of our clients. I like that. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Julia, for uh, sharing so much with us today. That's great. I think people get a lot of value out of that. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. One thing that Julia mentioned in the interview that I wanted to follow up on here was financial planning software. This is a question I get all the time from students and former students is, what financial planning software do you use or what's the best financial planning software? And I think Julia does a good job of talking through this, where she says, look, there's no perfect product out there. Instead, you're left with the thing that you're most comfortable with. And I think this is a good way to look at it, that the learning curve and the transition to different financial planning software, I think, is something to really take into account here. And I know people who switch financial planning software with some regularity, I have to think that that creates a little bit of a headache every time you do it, maybe for you, maybe for your clients, but I think that to some extent, going to find the perfect solution might not be the right way to do this, but rather find a good solution, that is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, and get comfortable with that. And then exactly as Julia mentions, I think that 
everybody who's doing financial planning work should also have some degree of proficiency with Excel. Often you'll find, no matter what financial planning software you're using, that Excel is necessary to do smaller, narrower sets of calculations where you're just trying to compare two or maybe three variables. And you've heard me talk about that before on this podcast. And in fact, uh, right about the time this podcast goes to air, we're running a half-day session on uh, Zoom where I'm going to go through some of the basics of using Excel for financial planning projections. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. The number for this episode is three. The number for this episode is three. Okay, I hope you'll join us again in two weeks when we'll have Megan Vallis from Equitable Life on. Megan is well known to those in the group benefit space. Uh, she's always done a great job with her social media presence and she's done quite a bit of podcast appearances herself in the past. I had a great conversation here with Megan where again I got to learn a lot and for the group benefits folks out there it takes us back into the group space. I think though that the individual planners out there, the, the life insurance and financial planning focused people out there will also get some value out of this. Uh, Megan does a good job here of talking about sort of switching roles going from the client facing role to the advisor facing role. She's done, she's lived on sort of both sides of that fence and I found this quite interesting and she just has a good overall handle on the direction that our industry is going in. Thanks very much for joining us and enjoy your continued learning. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelopaket, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.